Please take your Bibles and turn to John 11 this evening. Today is Resurrection Sunday. As such, we have taken special care today to remember the victory of Jesus Christ over death through His resurrection from the grave. Through the prophecy or the assurance of Job in Job 19, as we looked at 19 verses 25 and 26 this morning, we have seen the ultimate victory of our Redeemer and the assurance of our own victory over death through that victory. But in a manner of speaking, as we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ today and we sang about His resurrection, we looked at the end result of a principle which we allowed, though understood, to go unstated. This evening we are going to take a look at the principle that undergirds the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The principle that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has been said, and we've talked about it even, I've talked about it from behind the pulpit before. Oftentimes you'll hear that the only two guarantees in this world are death and taxes. They say that the only two guarantees in this world are death and taxes. Well, we know that that's not really true. It's said tongue-in-cheek. It's funny because there is an element of truth to it. However, there are plenty of people in this world who don't pay taxes and who never have and never will pay taxes because of various cultural, societal, government situations. And so we know that, in fact, taxes are not something that is guaranteed in this world. However, regardless of our government and our economic status and our cultural and societal considerations... One thing that is absolutely sure is that no man can cheat death. Now, as I say this, I say this from a human perspective. Now, we know from the Scriptures that there will be a generation that will not see death. We know from Scriptures that there have been uh, two men in recorded Scriptures that have not seen death. Two men have been taken, translated, did not see death in the Scriptures. And we know that. So I'm, I'm not talking about those two supernatural occurrences in Scriptures, nor am I speaking of those that will be raptured by Jesus Christ when He comes back for His saints. But I'm speaking from a human perspective. No human in the general living of point A to point B, beginning to end, no human can cheat death. Death is not simply a consideration for certain cultures. Death is not a consideration only for the elderly. Death is not a consideration only for certain regions. Death is universal. I could die today. You could die today. My little girls at 16 months old could die today. And so we recognize that death is always a possibility. It is an unavoidable element of human existence. But, just because something is unavoidable does not mean that it is not... Excuse me. It does not mean that it is uncontrollable. 
Just because it's definitely going to happen does not mean that it does not have limitations. It does not mean that it operates outside of sovereign control. And in John chapter 11, we see an example both of the power and of the limitations of death. And we see an example of life in a different way than perhaps sometimes we have considered life before. This chapter will remind us not only of the glory and power of the God that we serve, but of the very essence of the life that we live, of this life that we have, of the living and the breathing and the living and the dying that so defines the human existence. So this evening from John 11, we're going to look at three lessons. Three lessons on this Resurrection Sunday about life and death. Let's look at them together. First lesson we see in verses 1 through 17 of John 11 is that death is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. Death is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. We left Jesus Christ last week in John 10 in the wilderness. He had exited Jerusalem and going beyond Jordan, he went to the place where John had initially been baptizing. Now we do not know where that was specifically and we don't know specifically where he is in John 11 as we step into this chapter, but we do know that he's not in Judea. He may still be in the wilderness or he may be in Galilee. Verse 1 tells us that a man named Lazarus was sick. Now Lazarus lived in Bethany. This city of Bethany was a city just to the east of Jerusalem and it was in Judea. Lazarus lived with his two sisters, one was named Mary, the other, Martha. The scriptures tell us that this Mary is the woman who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Notice what it says in John 11 verse 2. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. I'm not going to go into Mary and this... Um, instance this evening, but I do want to mention this. This is very interesting at this point in the text because we find the account of Mary anointing Jesus Christ with oil in John chapter 12, the next chapter of Scripture. He just identified a woman by an action that she had not yet performed. He identified this woman by something which he would talk about in the next chapter. And that is very curious. We're going to talk about the John 12 conundrum in Sunday school. Not next week, not the week after, because those two weeks are chartering a missions conference. But the Sunday school after that, and that will be just prior to when I preach on John 12, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about some of the, the confusion, some of the identification problems, perhaps, with this Mary and with the events 
in the synoptic gospels surrounding the anointing of Jesus Christ with oil. So if you want to look into that over the next few weeks, you'll have a couple of weeks to dig in. It might, you might find it very interesting if you're interested in doing the study on your own, but we'll talk about it in Sunday school uh, in, in three weeks' time. Jesus is told in verse 3 that Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, is sick. And notice Jesus' response in verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Jesus Christ says, This sickness is not unto death. Now, this is important to note. Jesus said that this sickness is not unto death. Death is not the end result of his illness but rather the glory of God. The end result, the intention of this illness is not that he should die, but that God should be glorified. Jesus, having heard of Lazarus' illness, the scriptures say abides two days in the place where they were. Following these two days, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 7 that they are going to go into Judea again. The disciples ask in verse 8, look at it with me, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Are you really going to go into Judea again? Don't you know that the Jews of late have been seeking to stone thee? Do you remember John 10? Do you remember that about halfway through John 10, they picked up stones to stone him? They didn't. Do you remember at the end of John 10, again, they picked up stones to stone him. Twice, just in the account of John 10, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They have been of late seeking to stone Jesus Christ. And they say, you're going to go back into Judea when they have of late been seeking to stone you? Jesus' response, verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. I referenced this passage of Scripture when we were preaching, when I was preaching, when you were listening, way back in John 9.4. Do you remember back in John 9.4, Jesus stated that the day was the time that the Father had given him to work on this earth. Turn back very quickly with me. We'll just take a look at that verse to jog our memories. In John 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 4, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And so Jesus Christ there very clearly stating that God has given him a season with which to work. And so he has this season in which he has been given this opportunity and he is going to take it. Well, that helps us because in John 11, this is a little confusing. They say, should we really go into Judea? And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If a man walk in the day, he won't stumble. What he is saying here is as long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. So his window of ministry was the time that he lived upon this earth. In other words, he was saying this. Look, disciples, you are asking me if I should go do the will of my father. And if it's a good idea that I do the will of my father because these Jews want to stone me, of course I need to go and do Judea. It's the will of my father. And as long as I'm doing the will of my father, 
Until the day that my father says it's time for me to die, I'm not going to die. So as long as it's day, as long as there's light, as long as I am walking in the ministry that God has given to me, I'm safe. You don't have to worry about me. You don't have to worry about the Jews stoning me because it's still my time of ministry. And until my time of ministry is over, they can't do a thing to me. Until it's God's will that I die, I'm not going to die. I have always admired those missionaries. We have missions conference coming up in two weeks. Those missionaries who have had that mindset and that perspective. That mindset that says, I'm going to go and I'm going to do the will of God. And until the day that God's will is for me to perish, I'm just going to do what He has called me to do. They are going to set aside the fear in their hearts of unknown people groups. They're going to set aside the fear in their hearts that they might perish in the the ministry. They're going to set aside the fear in their hearts that they might not have enough money to eat the next day. They're going to set aside those fears because as long as God has ordained ministry for them, God is going to provide for them. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying here. He says there's 12 hours in a day. As long as I'm walking in the light, I'm not going to stumble. As long as I'm walking in the will of my Father, I'm not going to trip and fall. These Jews can't touch me until the will of God has allowed them to touch me. So Jesus announces. He says in verse 11, These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. But I go that I may awake him out of sleep. He then announces Lazarus is sleeping. And Jesus must go and awake him. The disciples interpret Jesus' words very literally and tell Jesus, well, Jesus, if, if he's sleeping, then perhaps we shouldn't go into him. After all, we've heard that he's sick. He's very sick, in fact. If he's sleeping, this is a good thing. When you're sick, you need sleep. This is good. He's sleeping. This is good. Maybe we shouldn't wake him up. And so Jesus, uh, recognizing that they had misinterpreted his word, says very clearly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus Christ said what he said, the way he said it, for a very important reason. And notice what he says then in verse 15. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. The disciples are quite confused now. Lazarus is sick. Jesus Christ is called. Jesus says, his sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified. And then he remains two days where he is. Then he says, it's time to go into Judea. And the disciples say, is this a good idea? Jesus Christ says, it's okay. We can, everything's going to be okay here. He says, Lazarus is sleeping. I must go awake him. The disciples say, this is great. He's sleeping. He needs to rest. Don't awake him. Lazarus is dead. But he said, it's good that this would come to pass that you might understand, that you might believe. Very interesting set of circumstances here. Thomas says this in verse 16. They're still confused. Notice what he says. Then Thomas, 
which is called Didymus, said unto his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. They don't grasp the situation. They don't understand what is, what is being said here. Thomas thought Jesus Christ was spiritualizing this idea of death, that he had died to self. Let us go and let us die with him. They're still confused. They don't understand. Jesus Christ says, this is okay. This is good that you might believe. By the time they get to the grave, Lazarus has been dead four days. Four days now he's been dead. Now we know from experience and wisdom that God is not the source of death. We know that sin brought death into this world, that sin perpetuates death in this world, and that death will continue only as long as sin continues. Death is therefore the ultimate attempt to strip God of his glory, and yet God demonstrates in the first 17 verses of this chapter that even death is on a short leash. That even death is under control. That even death cannot overcome the power of God. Can you see the tremendous implications of these statements upon the Christian life? Should the Lord tarry, every one of us will come face to face with death at some point in our existence. Now we would all desire that that time come at an old age. But it may be that illness or that accident or crime or persecution will bring death to us earlier than we would expect. Brother Grismore in his testimony this morning in the service had mentioned the trail of blood that we can trace throughout the history of the New Testament church. We would say that that trail of blood began as far as the church age goes the martyrdom for the church, we would say that that began with Stephen. And as you can read in history books and in books such as Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can trace the history of men who have been martyred for the faith. And yet in this generation and in this culture, we have been supremely blessed by the degree to which our faith has been allowed and accepted in our culture. But death might come to us. It might present itself to us far earlier than perhaps we would like from a human perspective. But just because death might be outside of our control, this does not mean that death is outside of God's control. Just because things such as cancer, things such as accidents, violence, just because these things can be outside of our control, it doesn't mean that God is surprised. It doesn't mean that they're outside of God's control. The time and the circumstances of your death are in the hand of God. And this should do two things for us. This should bring about two understandings in our lives. Number one, it should give us confidence. Confidence not to be reckless with our lives, but also not to be timid with our lives. We can have confidence to serve God the way that God has called us to serve Him in the midst of danger and difficulty because we know that God can and will protect us as we rest in His will. We talked about this very briefly with missionaries. The missionary can go into the jungles of Papua New Guinea, can go into the jungles of Africa, can go into the tundras of Russia, without fear because he knows that God has led him there. And where God leads, he protects and provides. 
It should give us confidence. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Should the Lord lead you to do so, you can go into the inner city of Minneapolis. You can pass out literature. You can witness to those in need without fear. Because where God leads, He provides. Should God call you to that ministry all the way across the country where there's no job security and where you're not exactly sure what's going to happen when you get there and when you don't exactly know what the people are going to be like and should God call you there, you can go. Because where God leads, He provides and protects. It should give us confidence. Second, it should give us comfort in the midst of the difficulties that we find ourselves in. Knowing that death is realized in God's time. When we or loved ones have terminal illnesses. When we pray for those that have cancer that looks and seems to be untreatable. When we pray for those that are in the hospital on their deathbed. When we have a friend or a loved one who dies in an accident. We can know that God was in control. We can know that God knew what was going to happen. And that should comfort us in the midst of our sorrow. It can comfort us in the midst of our trials and troubles. Now, I do not want to die of a terminal illness. I do not want to die of violence or accident. But if I were to do so, I would trust and hope and pray that the people of my church and that my family would have comfort knowing that God knew. And though it might be a tragedy, it's not outside of God's control. Death is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. Second lesson this evening from verses 18 through 45. Life is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. Life is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. Verse 18 tells us that Bethany was 15 furlongs from Jerusalem. 15 furlongs is less than two miles away. When they arrived, they found many Jews there attempting to comfort Mary and Martha. Verses 20 through 22 say that Martha, having heard Jesus was come, came and notice what she said, beginning in verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus responds in verse 23, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha replies that she believes in the resurrection and knows they will see Lazarus again. She says, I know, Lord, I believe in the resurrection. Verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This statement leads us to Jesus' assertion of a second very important truth. We've seen that death is in the hand of the Savior, but His second assertion, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. And then He asks her, Believest thou this? Verse 27, She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 
Jesus' point was this, Martha, if you would send for me and eagerly desire that I would rescue your brother from the hand of death, why will you not now eagerly desire that I would restore your brother the gift of life? As Jesus' followers stood behind him, we see that Martha said, Yet even now, Lord, I know that God will give you what you desire. And yet as these disciples stood around Jesus Christ, there was a mental block in the mind of Jesus' followers that convinced them to some degree or another that Jesus Christ's power ended at death. Jesus could spare people from death with His miraculous power, but once death took hold, it seemed as though they believed Jesus had no power left in Him. They perceived death to be the ultimate inevitability, even beyond the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could do many miracles. He could, he could make food out of that which... Um, he could make more out of less. He could uh, calm the waters of the sea. He could heal those with terminal illnesses. He could heal the blind and the lame. But it seems as though there was a block that said, once death has grabbed him out of Jesus' hand... He seems powerless. But has not the message of Jesus Christ throughout the entire book of John been a message of life? Has not every chapter been an offer by Jesus Christ unto the world that if they would receive Him, they should not see death? Was not Jesus' very declaration that death should have no power over the followers of Jesus Christ? Does He not even say in these two verses that Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. They limited Jesus Christ for the same reason we limit Jesus Christ oftentimes. Because mankind has an inherent inability to converge the physical and the spiritual. We see that which is spiritual oftentimes just fine. We see that which is physical oftentimes just fine. But we as believers, we as humans, I should say, oftentimes have a difficulty believing that the spiritual can touch the physical. That our prayers can have physical impact. Why? Why is it such an important lesson for us to learn that the physical and the spiritual converge at Jesus Christ? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be a bodily resurrection and because His bodily resurrection is our assurance of our own bodily resurrection. Because the very essence of the Gospel is dependent upon the power and authority of Jesus Christ to raise men from the dead bodily. If His power over death or if His power over life is limited, if the spiritual and the physical do not converge in Jesus Christ, then we rest in hopelessness. When Jesus saw the hopelessness of the people that stood around him, verse 33 states that he groaned in his spirit. He desired so much that these people that were around him would understand. That they would understand his power over death and over life, but they don't understand. And it grieved him in his spirit. So Jesus asked, where they lay Lazarus? And the Scriptures tell us that Jesus wept. The people questioned. 
as we've mentioned. Couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind save Lazarus from death? As they are questioning in their minds why Jesus Christ did not save this man from death, Scriptures tell us Jesus continued to groan in His Spirit for the unbelief of the people. He commands the stone to be taken away from the tomb. And in verse 41 it says He prayed. Then they took away the stone from the place where uh, the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me and I knew that Thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. And then He cries in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. He prays unto God and says, God, thank you that you've heard me. I'm saying this for the benefit of those around me. And then Lazarus, come forth. He's been dead four days. Four days he has been in the grave. Lazarus, come forth. What did Lazarus do? What can any man do at the command of Jesus Christ but obey? And so Lazarus, having been dead four days, obeys Jesus Christ because no one, not even a dead man, can contradict the will of God the Father and God the Son, the God of heaven. The Scriptures tell us many believe on Him as Lazarus comes out of the grave. Let's read it together. Verse 44. And when he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with an, uh, about with a napkin, Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Does that word many kind of make you wonder there? Do you wonder if there were some there that didn't believe? Well, you don't have to wonder because look at verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The but there makes us understand that there were some there that when they saw a man rise from the dead, didn't believe they got indignant. That will be our third point this evening. Our first lesson, death is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. Second point, life is in the exclusive hand of your Savior. The third point, you may be looking a little bit huh, at that third point. Let me read to you my third point. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Pastor, what are you saying? Well, really, I was just trying to wake you all up. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Let's talk about it together. We see a typical pattern in John that manifests itself. We see a mixed group of people. That mixed group of people sees a miracle of Jesus Christ of some sort or another. Some believe, others don't. So it was reported to the Pharisees that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Surely, this would confirm that he's Messiah. Lazarus was dead four days. And he came out of the tomb at the command of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 47 and 48. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees and council and said, What do we 
For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. They don't talk about the merits of the miracle. They don't talk about the fact that a man was just raised from the dead. They talk about how in the world they can stop this message of Jesus Christ from spreading. This is craziness. This is foolishness. This is the blindness of the unbelieving world. In, in, in its fullest expression, this is the blindness of the unbelieving world. And this is where Caiaphas, acting as high priest that year, rose up and said something very important. Verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Caiaphas stated that it was imperative that Jesus die for the sake of the spiritual health of the nation. Now, by stating this, what he was attempting to do was officially sanction the death of Jesus Christ by any means. This man must die. And he's using the good of the nation as an excuse. The Romans are going to come in and take us over if this man keeps doing what he's doing because the whole nation is going to come after him. They're going to make him king. The Romans are going to get angry. He's got to die. It's expedient that one man should die. But in doing so, in making this statement, he involuntarily confirmed exactly what Jesus Christ had been preaching. Caiaphas sought to declare that for the best interests of the nation, as well as the Jews dispersed throughout other lands, Jesus must die. His declaration could not have been more true. The death of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary and would be the most beneficial thing Jesus could ever do for His people, for the nation of Israel. Caiaphas didn't mean that Jesus Christ would die in order to save mankind from their sins, but he involuntarily prophesied the very fact. Now, as we consider this, can you see that this is the exact point that Jesus Christ is attempting to teach us through this chapter? Jesus was showing the world that death and life were in His hands alone. And here we have Jesus' enemies seeking to do what they perceive is the worst thing for Jesus, but in fact, in their attempt to do what they believe to be the very worst thing for Him, it will be the very thing that Jesus Christ needs in order to fully establish and demonstrate the truth of His message and of His authority. Because death and life are in the hand of our God. In God's time and in God's way, Jesus will need to die for the sins of His people as well as for the world. And these wicked men would be the means by which God would bring that to pass. And so I say that our last point is this. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The old expression means this. I can tell you that my wife makes good pudding. I can describe great the, the delicacy of the pudding as I eat it, as I consume it, as the pudding enters my mouth. And you know how those glands kind of tingle on the back of your throat sometimes when something that you've been anticipating touches your tongue? 
and I can tell you about how my glands tingle when the spoon enters my mouth with my wife's pudding on it. But the proof of the pudding is when you eat it. The proof of how good it is is when you eat it. We have, um, we have warped this statement and, and we say it this way today. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. That's how we put it today. That is really just kind of a butchering of this old statement. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. In much the same way, Jesus Christ could declare His power over life and death verbally. He could demonstrate His power over life and death through Lazarus. But these final words, this prophecy of Caiaphas, what is about to happen in the chapters to come, it all shows us that even in the hearts of men absolutely opposed to the will and the work of God, there is no escaping God's sovereign control over life and death. These very actions, the very actions of these men confirm that which they are attempting with every fiber of their being to deny. They are attempting with everything that they have to prove that Jesus Christ is not Messiah and every attempt on their part to prove it is only going to prove it more true. Because the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Because when Jesus Christ will rise from the dead, when He Himself will resurrect, everything that He said is validated. Everything that He said is confirmed. Everything that He said is proven to be absolutely true because He just proved Himself, even in His own death, to be more powerful than the death that sought to take Him. And that is what Resurrection Sunday is about. It's about the proof of everything that Jesus Christ said in His life, validated through His life after death. As we close, let's consider some important questions. Death is in the exclusive hand of the Savior. We know this, but do we live this way? Has your fear of persecution, of injury, of death, of harm, hindered the direction that God has attempted to point you are you so afraid of the physical consequences of serving God that you're frozen into inaction? It could be very minor. It could be as much as being afraid that somebody is going to persecute you for sharing the gospel. All the way to being afraid that you can't go to the mission field that God has called you to go to. Has there been a fear in your heart that has bound you against God's will? And again, this should not lead us to recklessness. We have a responsibility before God to be prudent, to exercise discernment, to work within the understanding that we have of God's will. But God forbid that our fear of death or pain or persecution should keep us from a mission field, should keep us from evangelization of a bad part of town, should keep us from serving God in the midst of injury or illness. God forbid that we should be shackled by the fear of a death that is entirely in the hand of our Savior. We see as well that life is in the exclusive hand of our Savior. And through Jesus Christ's great declaration in this chapter, as we've already considered today, we recognize then that we can do nothing to earn life. We can do nothing to secure for ourselves eternal life. That our physical life is a gift from God to us. 
and that eternal life is as well a gift from God to us. So on this Resurrection Sunday, as in a few minutes we'll leave this building, we will complete our day. We have an opportunity to refocus and remember the power and the purpose of God in life and in death. We've seen a principle this evening that undergirds that which we talked about this morning. The principle of life and death being in the hand of the Savior that undergirds what Jesus Christ did so many years ago when that stone was rolled away and the angels announced, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. This privilege a privilege whereby we don't have to worry about life and death. We don't have to fret about life and death. We can leave life and death in the hands of our Savior should give us confidence both in this life and for our life to come. As well, it should compel us to greater service, greater worship, and let's not forget this last one, greater joy.